Hello, everyone. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Here we are with another episode of Heartstock Radio. And today our guest is Jackie Corlett. Am I saying that correctly, Jackie Corlett? Yep, Corlett's fine. And she is the founder of Motif and Motif Handmade in just a moment. Jackie's going to be with us and talk to us about Motif and what she's doing. Some incredible work in Bangladesh and maybe some other places too, I don't know, but we'll soon find out. Daniel Hogan is in the studio, and in just a moment, we will be right back with Jackie. This is Heartstock, and thank you so much for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, our guest is Jackie Corlett, and she is the founder of Motif Handmade. Hello, Jackie, and thank you so much for sharing your story on Heartstock. Thank you so much, Carol. Hello, and hello, Daniel. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to being here with you today. Thanks so much for the invitation. And I know that you're speaking with us from Illinois. And where in Illinois are you? Um, I'm actually based in central eastern Illinois, about uh, 20 miles outside of Champaign in a tiny little town called Royal, which doesn't even have 300 people in it. But all <sighs> there are are fabulous. So, yeah. <laughs> and can you give us a little introduction? What is Motif and what you do there? Mm, yes, thank you. Motif, we are uh, a business based in Bangladesh. I'll get into more of how we set up and everything later, but essentially I'm a designer and I create the fabrics that we manufacture and the small goods that we manufacture. And then there's, we work with a whole load of artisans that bring all of those designs to life and use their amazing skills to bring them into the lives of people around the world. So yeah, that's kind of the hub of what Motif is about. Mm -hmm. And how about you, Jackie? I know that you're not from Illinois. I detect just a tiny little (laughs) accent there. How did you come to Illinois? Oh, that's a a bit of a roundabout journey. Not directly from England where I, well, I'll have to say I'm actually from the British Isles because if any of your listeners know of it, I'll be wonderfully pleased. I was actually born on the Isle of Man, mm. which is a tiny little island halfway between Ireland and England, and uh, a very, very important part of my life. Um, we left the island when I was quite small, but was raised mostly in England, but we were back on the island for practically all of our summers. So it was uh, a very special place to grow up in, but mostly raised just outside of Liverpool in the northwest of England and moved to Bangladesh in 89. And whilst I was there, I met and married an American, a wonderful man, (laughs) and moved here to Illinois, uh, his home place in, let's see, 2008 was when we moved here. That's how I come to be here. Slightly roundabout route, but... (laughs) And did you move to Bangladesh with your family? And how old were you? Was that as a child? Did you move there? No, no. I'd actually completed my 
um, design education and had been working for about five years freelance in London. But probably the, the biggest thing that caused the direction to, to Bangladesh was that whilst I was at art college, that was when really it was my faith journey kicked in. And I, I understood at, at one point that all that I was really reading about Jesus and how things held together with that truth of who he is. And it was just like, oh, my goodness, I went through this bit of a crisis moment. It was like, oh, wow, this is true. And that means I'm a Christian. And so that means... I can't be a designer anymore. I've got to do something good with my life. I've got to be <laughs> a teacher or a nurse or something like that. <laughs> but um, thankfully, there was there were other very strong, wonderful, artistic, creative Christians around me. And they said, Jackie, these are the gifts you've been given. These are the gifts he'll use. Chill. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so um, I finished my... I'm actually a, a weaver, a textile designer. And that's what my training's in. And I graduated and I worked, as I say, freelance and retail at some very good places for about five years. And that was when I got connected with an agency that, um, yeah, was looking to have, I would say, export-orientated design being brought into the environment in, in Bangladesh because weavers there fabulous in their skills, but needed more access to Western markets to be able to generate more employment. That was what I went over to do. There was already a strong designer there from the UK. And so we handed over and I continued on. I was the last one there with the remit to really develop uh, Bangladeshi designers, which I continued to do for quite some time. And now it sounds like maybe things have evolved a bit. Um, over mm. time, can you talk about what you're doing now and how is that? How has that changed? Yeah, it's my my life in Bangladesh has gone through a, a few iterations, really, and each one of them has built on the last. And I continue to love it. I continue to obviously be completely hooked. When I first got to Bangladesh, that was when I realized the difference between what I had been doing in England. Working as a designer was great. You know, you kind of get the kudos and everybody likes your fabrics and all that good stuff. But when I got to Bangladesh and I saw, oh my goodness, you know, these are my designs. And they could have been anybody's designs, but the weavers I was working with, it was in a fair trade organization. And they were getting paid well. They were in good working conditions. Their kids were going to school. They didn't have to go to money lenders. There was all kinds of good stuff happening because they were involved in a fair trade agency. And so I got completely hooked because it was so different to whatever I'd been involved in in England. And it was like, why would I go back? <laughs> And so that's when I got much more involved in the actual training of designers as well. At that time, not to go into too much detail, at that time, there, there wasn't a tertiary level actual design education. There was fine arts, but not design education in Bangladesh. And so after I'd finished my contract in five years, I then returned to the UK. I did my master's 
I developed a design training curriculum that was suitable for, for the environment in Bangladesh and returned to Dhaka and then set that up with uh, a couple of private institutes that had by then established in Bangladesh, which was super. So, yeah, and I'm pleased to, to share that some of the people who were my students at that time are now teaching that same course. So it's exciting to have seen that come around. I'm still in touch with all of them. But somewhere in there, I realized, hang on a minute, I can't just teach about this stuff. I've got to prove that it works, that really engaging artisanal production really does make a huge impact on people's lives. Um, because in rural areas, people have very, very few opportunities for for earning, for progression, for building their livelihoods, their health, their education. But by investing in the skills that they already have, trying rather than trying to reconfigure things, um, we're much more able to help nurture and, and build stable communities. So that's what I really wanted to bring to the fore, along with plenty of others in Bangladesh. I wasn't the only one. There's, there's lots of us there involved in fair trade handwork. So yeah, that's kind of what motif was born out of in Bangladesh. And then it was, that was 98 when I set up motif in Bangladesh. And I set up motif intentionally to actually create handwoven product handwoven yardage because that was my passion you know um and so i did but it took about two years for me to realize that in 98 the market still was not ready for ethically produced yardage fabric there was there was good market coming up for an awareness for fair trade finished goods like bags and purses and and good stuff like that but to go that step back to actual sourcing of raw materials just wasn't on the radar for people. So it was tricky because it was before the internet, <laughs> remember back then. Um, and so it meant that I couldn't find, you know, the two dozen people in the world that felt like me. So, yeah, I, that's when I shifted to creating small goods again, um, bags and purses and accessories for home collaborating with designers to do that and moved from that really for the next 20 years I was involved in that and then um yeah then I was at a conference where I had the aha moment that I could get back to textiles <laughs> and was that because you saw uh, public awareness and consumer demands changing Absolutely, yes. And it was exciting. I was at uh, at a particular conference. It was full of wonderfully dynamic young women entrepreneurs with a, a real social mission in their business setups and things like that. And I can, it sounds a bit sad, but at one point I remember just sort of sitting, watching everybody and thinking, oh my goodness, I used to be you. <laughs> Um, so on a, but it was wonderful because the energy was so contagious and it was just so inspiring. And I was like, hang on a minute, I'm still me. I've still got a desire to see all of this happen. And I've got connections now with all the weavers I could ever hope to need. So I'm going to do it. And it was great because by that time we had 
created a, a relationship here in the US with a company who became our distributor for the small goods, for the finished goods. So it meant that the women could keep on working to produce all of those kind of things. Um, and I could actually begin to focus much more on the fabrics, which was my passion from the start. And so that's how Motif Handmade was born. And if anybody wants to, to see all the beautiful handwoven creativity that happens in Bangladesh, yeah, that's the name of the website. It's just motifhandmade.com. But um, that is has just been fabulous because, well, yeah, it, it was a fabulous start, very exciting, creating the first collection. And then the first collection actually landed about the same time as COVID. <laughs> so that's been a bit of a challenge to get things moving. But we are definitely on the way because last year, 2022, was the first time we could have trade shows again. And so that was when designers were really able to start getting the fabrics in their hands and, yeah, really get their imaginations sparking about what can be done with handwoven fabrics. So... Was there something in your upbringing early in life, it sounds like a very magical childhood, that kind of inspired you or may have influenced you to go down this path in life? That's a wonderful question because, yes, indeed, um, on the Isle of Man, I can remember in one of the summers, um, the Isle of Man has a very traditional tartan. Uh, it's a Manx tartan that we have. And my mum decided, my mum was an incredible seamstress. So my love of textiles and sewing, creating things definitely is from her. Um, and her mother too, an amazing designer in her own right in the wartime years. Um, but she, my mum was just fabulous, making all kinds of crazy um, fancy dress costumes and all of our party dresses. And so so she was keen to get hold of some of this tartan. And I went with her this one time, actually, to the woman who was weaving it. And I can remember, I could have only, must have only been about maybe nine or ten, and walking into this studio, which was quite dark, um, and I don't remember a lot of detail about it, but I do remember the the rhythm of the loom and the the dust in the air and the sunlight coming through and and just these shafts moving up and down and and it was that was magical was seeing this fabric emerging like just yarn by yarn, and that absolutely caught me right there. But then I think also as I as I progressed, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Those kind of moments, I think, become part of your DNA somehow, your your spiritual DNA somehow, and for like your tracking going forward. And I honestly hadn't remembered that moment for quite some time. And it was only recently, last few years, when I was back on the island one time, that um, oh, hang on a minute, yeah, this really is where it all began. <laughs> So that, that was part of it. But um, yeah, I, I ended up going to art college. Uh, art education in, in the UK is done a bit differently to what it is here. So I started on my art degree when I was just 18 and then graduated finally in woven textiles four years later. 
We're going to take our break here in just a moment. We'll be right back with Jackie and learn more about what's going on in Bangladesh. This is Heartstock. We'll be right back. You're listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and today our guest is Jackie Corlett, and she is the founder of Motif. And Jackie, you kind of took us through the history of what you're doing um, a bit earlier, and I'm wondering if we can kind of talk a little bit more about the realities of the lives of the folks that you're you're working with and... Um, how that impacts what you're able to do with Motif and for the folks that you're working with. I mean, you also mentioned fair trade. I'm hoping we can kind of delve into that and just create um, a, a real picture for our listeners of what the life of your artisans is like. Mm. Yeah, thank you very much that we can highlight this because obviously that is, for me, one of the biggest pulls that keeps me absolutely engaged is recognizing the impact that that this work has on people who are really it's it's interesting carol one of the things that we think about when we think about poverty is um lack of resources and just lack of stuff but one of the important things to recognize in understanding the scenario in a place like Bangladesh is that poverty is not about lack of resources. It's about lack of opportunities. And as it is in most places, I think. And one of the things that happens, I mean, there are many, obviously we can't get into them all in a, in a, in this program, but I think I would pick out for myself the main thread that really does run through all of my work, no pun intended, being a weaver, but um, it's very much that the communities in Bangladesh that are rural and have artisanal skills are very, very vulnerable because what tends to happen is that there is not employment for those kind of skills. And so what happens is that families get broken up because particularly the men, the fathers, have to go to nearby cities if they're lucky, but usually quite distant ones to be able to work, to earn money, to send back to the home to feed the family, to educate the kids if they get that at all. Um, but of course, what happens then is not only does the money they earn in the cities not go very far because they have to look after themselves in the cities and send money back home. But the impact on the communities is really, really tough because you end up with a lot of absentee father families and there's a lot of vulnerability that sets in because people are not so well supported. And particularly in the rural areas of Bangladesh, what happens is it's a it is a prime picking ground, sadly, for human trafficking. 
And so when families are in these vulnerable situations, it's part of the part of the resource that uh, that these traffickers have. They prey on that vulnerability. So when we get involved with artisanal production in these rural areas, in fair trade ethical ways, it means that, you know, for example, when we think about a weaver being at the loom, we think about, yes, that's great. The weaver is getting a fair trade wage. But the fact is, is that to prepare a loom for weaving, there's about 12 or more different steps of preparing the yarn and the loom before the weaver actually sits at the loom. And each one of those steps employs another two or three people. And so you get this entire community being able to be employed together in one industry. And that actually fuels not only security of of families, because everybody's still working at home together, but it means that all the money that's earned and the livelihoods that are built up is invested locally. And this is what we've seen happening over the years with um, different partners that we've worked with, that the schools begin to improve, then little bookshops open up and then little cafe stalls open up. And there's all kinds of things that begin to build up the local communities. Now, of course, it's not magical. It doesn't just happen in a moment, but it is. it means that there's a trajectory of constancy and stability that gets set, which is the foundation of so much health and wellness at all kinds of levels. So I think that's, for me, that's one of the most um, important elements that that fair trade artisanal production creates. And this seems kind of like a, a Grameen type model where you're investing in the women and their livelihoods and their craft. How does this, I mean, as a consumer, how does this differ from non-fair trade textiles that are produced in Bangladesh. I mean, this is a primary industry in the region, in the country, right? Yeah. Well, in, interestingly, we do, let's see, how to answer that about fair trade textiles. When when I'm talking about fair trade textiles, I am talking about hand-woven, handmade fabrics. The alternative is industrially woven fabric. So mill-made fabrics, we'll call them. Those industries are not regulated. It is very hard to think of regulation on the normal way of doing business within Bangladesh. Now, there are foreign companies that have come in and they have set up all kinds of uh, checks and balances within the systems. But for the most part, the industrial produced fabrics do not create the opportunities that fair trade made fabrics do. In fact, I was involved just last year, last couple of years, in some research by a local university, North South University in Bangladesh. And what we were doing was comparing the social and environmental impact of handloom production over powerloom production. And we found some amazing uh, insights through that study, one of which is that women are five times more likely to be employed in safe and respectful work in the handloom environment than they are in the powerloom. Environmentally, to just think that to create, to process one ton of cotton through handloom production takes 
800 pounds of water to process the same amount of cotton through power loom systems is at least 25 tons of water. And there are exponential benefits, both socially and environmentally, that we could go into. But one of the things that's important to recognize about handloom production is that it's not just this kind of romantic, idyllic, isn't this beautiful, it's handwoven scenario. It is that, but it's also wholly scalable and practical to create fabric that can be used for garment production in Bangladesh. We can produce handloom fabrics to that quality and that scalability if there are brands that are prepared to invest in it. We have maybe about four minutes left, and there's two questions. One of it relates to the sustainability of the fibers that you're using in your projects. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about things from the consumer prospect or standpoint, if we have time. Oh, my goodness, in just four minutes. <laughs> I, know. I know. Can I know. Okay, so uh, the fibers that we're using, we use cotton, but we also use fibers that are recycled from local garment factory waste in Bangladesh. Many people will know that the garment industry in Bangladesh is mammoth. And I partner with a company, Cyclo uh, Recycled Fibers. They contract with the factories. They take the wastage, break it down into fiber, twist it into yarn, and we hand weave with that yarn. So our fabrics are zero waste, zero toxicity because there's no new dye involved you know black scraps becomes black yarn mm -hmm. and then weave with it which is zero carbon and this is really the important thing that we want to bring into the just into the design world here in the u.s very specifically that you not only have access to these kind of fabrics to to make your fashion collections with but with it being handloom there's an incredible potential for customizing fabric because it can be made at such low minimums, low minimum quantities. Yes, and that is really important because it reduces the um, entry level pressures. If you can get smaller quantities, then you can have lower investment financially, mm -hmm. essentially. So that's kind of leads to the next question, which is um, the cost difference from a money standpoint, I mean, obviously, there's some huge benefits. How do we overcome these hurdles of doing things more sustainably and being able to manage the expense of that? It's just you more know, expensive. But, you know, the thing is, is that I, I actually think pairing up the costs involved, the whole cost involved. Exactly. Sustainable products are not that much more expensive. And one of the reasons is, is because when we're looking for sustainably sourced goods, we're looking to reduce the supply chain. And so, for example, for myself, working with designers, there's the weavers, there's motif, and there's the designers. We don't have racks of people in the middle, kind of adding margins on left, right, and center. So it means the designers can get paid, the, um, the weavers can get paid well, and the designers can receive a healthy price for their fabrics. It's, it's one of these smoke and mirrors things that's going on out there. Sustainable goods are not, when you pass it all out, they are not more expensive. 
Because there's also not the hidden costs of cleaning up the environment and the hidden social costs of folks not getting paid fair wages. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we've come <laughs> to the end of our time and we could talk a lot more. Maybe someday you can come back and we can talk more about your work. But so appreciate you sh- sharing your story on Heartstock and, and thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much, Carol. It's been a real privilege. Mm-hmm. This is Heartstock. We'll be back next week. As always, peace. I saw a sign there, and on the sign it Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.